Hello, I am Danielle Welsh-Rose. You are listening to Aberdeen Sustainability Inspires podcast, discussing all things relating to sustainability and responsible investing. I am absolutely delighted to have with me today as my guest, Clara Rourke. Claire is an author, environmentalist and advocate with two decades working in journalism, communications and campaigns across Australia and around the world. Claire helps others take action on climate change, currently as Australia Energy Transformation Program co-director at the Sunrise Project. Claire's first book, Together We Can, was published by Alan Irwin in 2022. Previously, Claire was National Director of Solar Citizens, a community-led renewable energy advocacy organisation. A former journalist, Claire has extensive experience advocating for social impact, including driving communications for the Every Australian Counts campaign for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and as a senior leader at Amnesty International Australia. Claire's father worked at a coal-fired power station, multiple coal-fired power stations all through his career, and now she spends her days working on how we can replace them in time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and how we can ensure workers communities and First Nations peoples share the benefits as the world quickly moves to clean, renewable energy. What a biography, Claire. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to jump in, Claire. Let's get started with, I've heard a rumour that you are, in fact, a terrible gardener. How does that work out with you being an environmentalist? Yeah, I love nature, but set me loose in a garden and the best thing for me to do is actually... Um, go and dig a big hole or cut a big thing down like you know that that heavy lifting work and kind of conceptual work I love but when it comes to the daily habits of um, pruning and things it's just not part of my life stage I think Um, and also you know working a lot um, trying to you know actually get emissions down is, is a big part of my life. I am really privileged to live on Durable country, which is the traditional owners of the land here just south of Sydney. And um, the Durable is the cabbage palm, which is littered through the Illawarra Escarpment rainforest um, just next to the beach, which is where I'm privileged to call my home. So I'm very blessed to be surrounded by nature, but it's probably best not to let me try and manage it. <laughs> well, for those listening in uh, to this podcast, you probably will have noticed our accents. We're both Australians, we're both located in Australia, and I think Claire has managed to paint. A beautiful picture of one of the most beautiful places I think in the world so I've now got a very vivid picture in my mind about uh, your location Claire I'm a little bit jealous I have to admit um, I'm interested in hearing a bit more about your book so not only are you an advocate for climate action but you've written a book called Together We Can can you tell us about why you decided to write this book and a little bit about it yeah well um, for folks who are listening you probably remember the um, black summer bushfires of um, the summer of 2019 to 2020 in Australia which um, destroyed about 20% of Australia's eastern forests and while um, I had already been working on climate change for some time um, I was hit with a really overwhelming wave of um, climate grief from that event which was really a, an event that traumatised our country and it had a massive impact around the world on so many people who know and love this um, this country and our landscape and our beautiful nature that we get to enjoy. And so I started looking into that and doing some personal work in response to that. Um, and I found from the vantage point I have working as a climate advocacy kind of specialist is that 
I could I had this vantage point where I could see wonderful interventions that were going on both in terms of you know limiting the expansion of fossil fuel development but also on the um, solutions the technology innovations the cost curves coming down for solutions and the communities that are doing so much and so the book is really around how everybody can make a substantial difference wherever they are whether it's in their homes or their workplaces and communities in their spheres of influence but it's also in response to these rising levels of both post-traumatic stress but also pre-traumatic stress when people are considering the climate um, challenge and the reality of the science that we're facing. And psychologists who specialise in this area, they actually re recommend taking action on climate change that's in line with your values. So you're not sitting and doom scrolling all the time, but you're you know, actually claiming your agency and, and doing something about the problem within your realm of influence. So we can all do this. And there are so many examples from around Australia, I wanted to capture those. Um, and I found it a really nourishing experience, but also had a bit of a think about uh, kind of behavioural economics and systems thinking and how we can think about our role in the, this, this very big problem that requires um, really radical solutions. It's so important, Claire. I think, you know, that, that doom scrolling that you, that you referred to and that overwhelming sense of what can little old me, you know, do to contribute to the solution here. I think having those practical steps is vital. Um, so that's, you know, a little bit about your book, which sounds just absolutely fascinating. Um, but in terms of your, your current role at the Sunrise Project, can you just enlighten us a little bit about what you're doing there and, and what that contributes to sustainability overall as well? A lot of people think environmental advocacy is about saving trees, and it absolutely is, but we look at a kind of holistic system that really considers how can we protect the planet so people and nature can thrive. And part of that in Australia is transforming our energy system. So the, our country makes a really fair contribution to keep global temperatures within 1.5 degrees, which is our obligation under the Paris Agreement. And there's lots of different um, facets to that work. It, it means ensuring policymakers and companies and investors are all pushing towards those same goals. And folks might not be aware if they're listening from other parts of the, the planet, but Australia has about less than a couple of percent of the world's population, but we contribute around 5% of the globe's carbon pollution. So we make a disproportionate impact um, from this country. And we also have really wonderful resources in this country that can be used to accelerate the clean energy transition in a way that's fairer for people who live here and, you know, for communities that will be um, part of that transition. But, you know, we've got incredible um, critical minerals resources and um, primary resources that we currently export around the world for primary processing. So thinking about iron ore and bauxite, those types of resources. So we, we are a critical player in terms of being able to green those um, primary industries onshore, some of those secondary processing um, that, that can be powered by the plentiful renewables resources we have. And we, we stand to become a critical player in global supply chains. And so that's a big opportunity for our country. It's a great opportunity for the world because we, can, we do have this incredible wealth of um, solar and wind resources. So um, Australia can make a really positive difference. And so we work on advocacy strategies that can both secure policy around that which are, you know, the biggest kind of, um, you know, bang for buck results you can get. 
um, but also to help shift um, companies and investors so that they are um, setting credible and reliable goals and then are held accountable to fulfilling them. So I'm always interested um, in asking people like you who've been working in sustainability for quite a long time about barriers and challenges because you know, it's one of these, these parts of the, the job universe, I guess, that we face a lot of them. But in particular, how you've managed to work through them, around them, under them, over them, however. Can you tell us about yours? Oh, well, look, I've got enormous privilege in my background and that's because I had a solid um, upbringing, which was you know, ironically enough, powered by coal. So um, as you mentioned earlier, my father worked in the industry his entire career. And, you know, like so many of us all around the world who have relied on these industries to, you know, not only, you know, create the privilege that we can enjoy in terms of our standard of living, but also that privilege has allowed me to place my skills and energies where I think it can make the biggest difference on the social issues that matter to me. I think there is... Uh, a bit of a view out there, particularly, you know, because of the way our society and economy is structured, is that folks who make the choice to go and work in advocacy and not-for-profits, you know, don't have the skills and qualifications that you might gain through um, working in the corporate sector or in other institutions. But um, my experience over the last 20 years shows me that there is vast intelligence across all sectors Um, from people from all walks of life um, and particularly among um, First Nations peoples, you know, Indigenous peoples from around the world. Um, If we had listened more to those people for longer, we probably wouldn't be in the state um, that we're in now because, you know, the old ways of being able to interact and respect and listen to the lessons of generations that have walked this earth for thousands of years before us, um, they are important lessons that we need to return to. So, sorry, it feels like um, I think sometimes there can be a view out there that folks working in, you know, the financial sector or in in particular parts of um, business have a set of skills that advocates don't. But my experience is the opposite. I think um, advocates have to be creative, tenacious, um, strategic, and they're often solving problems that are just so big they feel like they can't be one until they are. So, and often the work of advocates is to essentially pull every lever that can be pulled to get people to do things that they don't want to do. And, you know, that's, that's the work. And that's often harder than getting people to, you know, become aware of a thing and then purchase it, which is often, you know, the way most businesses essentially kind of work. So, yeah, I think, I think that's probably a bit of a barrier is um, a bit of a perception barrier. So um, I think we've got enormous potential to leverage the skills and intelligence um, across all sectors and um, channel that energy towards this problem. And um, uh, I think different ways of thinking about problems and solving them is um, what we need. I think you've possibly answered already the next question I wanted to ask you, which is really about A lot of our listeners to this podcast will be involved in the finance industry. What learnings do you think we in the finance sector can take from your work? Well, broadly, I think the point I'd make is that industries aren't machines. They are full of people. And they're people who have complicated lives and enormous dreams and hopes for the world. 
Um, and people in these industries often feel very powerless in the face of climate change. But action and actually feeling better about it starts by claiming your individual agency. Um, you know, it's also about recognising the agency you have in creating the, the mess we're in, um, but also in creating the solutions. So that's one aspect to it. Um, the social science that I researched for the book shows me that the power we actually hold is is not only in ourselves, but it's also in our connections, in our networks, but most particularly in the edges of networks, in the places where they meet. So I would um, ask you or invite your listeners to consider how are you networked now and where are you seeing the similar people pop up in multiple networks? Because it's probably those individuals um, within those networks who you could actually connect with on this issue because they're going to have more influence. Social change will spread more quickly when people in one network are also members of another network. So you'll see change leapfrogging. Um, and the third thing is around urgency. And these can be challenging things to consider. Emissions are still going up. As Al Gore reminds us, 75% of the world's greenhouse emissions come from countries that have made pledges to be carbon neutral by 2050, and we are running out of time. Um, and so folks in the financial sector have enormous influence, and a mindset shift is really required. The International Energy Agency has clearly stated that any new coal projects are not aligned with keeping the planet within 1.5 degrees. And in some cases, engagement with um, companies that are still invested in fossil fuels, it is no longer tenable to run an engagement strategy. So keeping fossil fuels in the ground is a legitimate strategy and a legitimate climate solution. And real action on climate change means disengaging from companies that are still engaged in, in expansion. Um, when there's no alternative for those companies to transition. I'm going to ask you the crystal ball question now, um, <laughs> which is always an interesting one. If you had the crystal ball and you could wish for anything in terms of um, energy transformation in Australia, what would it be? Yeah, well, I think what's funny about this is that humans are really terrible at making predictions about how quickly things can change and how much they can change. So a couple of really um, cool examples that I discovered in writing a book was, you know, back in 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicted that um, at best, solar, wind and geothermal power combined would only provide about 4% of the world's energy by 2100. Um, we are likely to beat that before 2030, which is seven decades ahead of that prediction. Um, but also back in 2014, um, the International Energy Agency predicted global average solar prices would be down at US um, five cents a kilowatt hour by 2050, but it only took six years for prices to drop to that level. So I think we'll see industries decarbonise a lot faster than we think they will. Um, I think in a few years' time, the fossil fuel industries that are continuing to try and hold back change will be viewed like the tobacco industry. They'll be global pariahs. They are already global pariahs. But I think solutions are now economically viable. Um, the technology is racing. And also global politics is shifting because of the urgency. It's certainly shifted in Australia. So um, it's very promising that our nation is going to transform from a climate laggard to a leader. So uh, I think um, ambition is there. Goodwill is there. I think the trick now is to ensure that we can have good accountability and credibility on both nations and um, institutions 
and companies so that they're accountable to their climate goals. I also think it's important for us to ensure that the way that we're transitioning doesn't replicate the extractivist uh, methods and tactics of years gone by, and there are already troubling signs that that can that is happening, particularly in um, carbon abatement markets. So ensuring that communities have choice and control and can share the benefits from the transition is one of the key ambitions that I hold and that we um, seek to advance through the work that we do on domestic energy transformation in Australia. So I think it'll be faster, but it also needs to be fairer than the practices that have um, happened in the past. I get a lot of hope from the answer you just gave then around how terrible we are as humans in predicting the future and how those statistics you just said about the energy transformation happening a lot quicker than had been forecasted or predicted. I think that's, yeah, a really positive sign, something for all of us to hang on to. We're feeling a little bit <laughs> like we want to doom scroll on climate change. So a bit of a personal question here. You know, often individuals working in the space of sustainability have had an event or met a person or had a trigger in their life that inspired them to get involved actively in this space. Was there that moment or that person or that thing for you? Um, that's a big question for me because um, my grandmother actually was quite politically active. We have very different views on social issues. She passed away some time ago, almost 20 years ago now. But she taught me that being engaged in the way that your society works is actually part of your civic duty, not um, something for other people to do. And so that was a big lesson. She was a big teacher for me. But on climate, um, I, <laughs> I was sent a survey by an advocacy organisation in Australia called GetUp. And GetUp does a regular member survey that says, tell me what we should campaign on it with a vast array of issues on it. This was close to 10 years ago, I think. And I looked at all of the options on that list from refugee rights and economic fairness, climate environment, press freedom, which I'd worked on previously myself, disability. I looked at the list and I thought, this is ridiculous. I care about all of these things. You know, I'm a classic kind of get up progressive person. They were all the social issues I cared about, but that survey actually made me take a second look and it crystallized for me the, where I'd been heading. And I, I thought if we don't have a safe climate, all of these other issues become so much harder. Inequality will grow. And, you know, the future of the way we live on this planet for all of us, no matter where you are, is at risk. And so I've made a conscious choice to direct my work into um, climate, environment, sustainability. Uh, and then in terms of my deep engagement, the work I've done on the book and um, my growing understanding of how important it is for communities to be well connected and you know working towards this challenge it was certainly the black summer fires that i mentioned earlier down here in the illawarra every night for you know almost three months we had orange cloaked skies we couldn't breathe we were checking the air quality apps and i know many people around the world live with very bad air quality but this was a shock for us because we're right next to the ocean um, but also every night when the sun went down we had thousands of flying foxes or bats rising up and these bats did not live locally. They were escaping from um, areas that were on fire, presumably. So we had this kind of end of days scenario every night for a few months where, you know, you've got these orange cloak skies, 
you know, the bats rising. We had to pack up our house at one point because we thought we'd have to evacuate. Um, my children were in tears. It was just, this was n- such a shock. So I'd already been working on climate. Um, I'd made that choice to um, come and work on en- energy transformation six months earlier at Sunrise. But it was such a colossal shock about how clear and present and urgent this issue is for me. It's obviously, you know, consolidated my my dedication to, to working on it. But I think it was the same for so many Australians as well. And we've done research at Sunrise called the Climate Compass, which surveys audience attitudes and behaviours um, on climate change. There's about 25% or more of Australians from all over the country not, not in cities and re- or regions, it's both, who are really worried about climate change. It is the number one issue for them. And I think it's because of those um, rising, that rising concern, but also a series of climate fueled disasters, including the fires and repeated flooding events that has seen um, concern reach new heights. And it's also really shifted community attitudes to the point where our politics has had to respond and we now have more policy and more regulation coming down the line, which will um, hopefully get us back on track because we've had 10 years of being far too far behind the rest of the world on um, climate policy. Your answer then just gave me goosebumps, Claire, because uh, you know those bushfires were a real turning point for so many people and organisations in this country. And we certainly noticed from the investment side a, a, a very sharp uptick in you know the sort of client end of things being interested in how they could direct their money in a way that would not contribute to the problem but also contribute to the solution and I think you know, as, as huge a tragedy as that event and the events around that were I mean the silver lining is that it, it really felt like a change in the tide in this country on climate change awareness so oh and for sure and if I can just add on that this is not a unique experience as well it is something that is being experienced with rampant forest fires in you know all of the major continents on the planet and it gives me pause for thought to consider that the flooding in Pakistan in 2022 displaced more people than the entire population of Australia so these these consequences are here now it's not a future problem for us so it's always a bit of a, a mind bender to think it takes all of us to be up against it before we can respond with the pace and scale of change that's required. Um, but I am more optimistic given what I've seen all around Australia and what you see signs of around the world that it, it's absolutely possible. And there's plenty of um, world leaders who remain optimistic, but also resolute in terms of what they're doing. As we draw to the end of our podcast, perhaps we can touch on one final question. What, in your opinion, do you think the next big sustainability issue is that the financial industry should be playing a role in? So, in other words, I guess, what should we in the finance sector be watching out for? Well, I think there's two major areas. I think making judgment calls on bad actors who don't have the possibility to transition their businesses but are, you know, seeking to influence uh, the financial sector but also governments to delay transition. So bad actors like like Adani I mentioned earlier. But more cross-cutting an issue is around um, mandatory disclosure and reporting. And I think this can be viewed as an opportunity to not only achieve a level playing field, um, but engage people in the credibility of um, the products that that are being offered. Um, 
I think sometimes there's a view around that, that it's just another restrictive obligation and we're already too far too regulated. But I think regulation is what's going to be required because um, otherwise governments won't be able to meet their obligations on their emissions reduction targets, let alone the financial sector itself. So, you know, consumers want credibility, policymakers need credibility. And so those rigorous standards are really what's required to get us on the right path. And I think there's plenty of opportunity for collaboration between advocates and um, the sector around um, regulation. And it goes beyond, uh, in my view, it goes beyond risk. So I think um, looking at looking at those regulatory issues so we don't have a myriad of complicated measurement um, statistics and everyone's trying to tell each other that their standards are better than others, I think regulation is probably the only way to make that work for all. Thank you so much for being with us today, Claire. It's been a, a real delight but also a very big inspiration to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Danielle. It was great to chat. You have been listening to Aberdeen's podcast, Sustainability Inspires, aiming to help you get inspired and to get involved. So to all of those who've taken time to tune in, many thanks for listening. You can find all our podcasts on our website. Tune in to our next podcast. Until then, goodbye for now. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.